0: Good morning. Good morning. I invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter sixteen. Technical issue this morning. I'm not going to have PowerPoint available, Um, but hey, the church existed for most of its history without PowerPoint, so we'll survive. John chapter sixteen will be in verse uh, second half of verse four through verse fifteen. And once again, hope you're having a great day on this beautiful Sunday. Thank you to the halls for doing the music today. Um, John had mentioned earlier the uh, evangelism discipleship training we're doing in February. Um, So excited about that. That's something we've been working on planning since last spring, uh, almost a year in the making. And yeah, for anybody who wants to come, um, and we're going to even open it up to people in the community who might want to come. And I've been talking to to Grace about doing it as well. And um, Yeah, I just think it's going to be a great way to get some, some training uh, that's focused on sharing our faith. It's something that we're called to do, but for m- most Christians, I would say, it's a struggle. Some people are really good at it. Uh, I think we all know people like that, but I think for a lot of us, for whatever reason, it's just a challenge. And so I'm really, really excited about that training we'll be doing next month. Again, it'll be on a Saturday. Um, and Looking forward to it. So if you're able to come that day, I would highly encourage it. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 4 through the end of verse 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for your word and the truth that it points us to. Lord, we pray that today's message would point us to the work of your spirit in the church and throughout time. Lord, we want to lift up people who need prayer. We pray for Ron Urgler. We're thankful that he's continuing to make improvements. Lord, we continue to pray for his recovery and for him to be able to start physical therapy very soon. Lord, and for these cognitive issues to clear up. Lord, we lift him up and we continue to pray for Marsha. Lord, we pray for Mark Kugler's brother John. And again, just pray for a full recovery for him with COVID. Lord, we pray for Bruce and Pam's daughter Leah getting married next week. And Lord, we just pray for, for good weather, for safe travels. Lord, we pray for a great celebration. We pray for Doug, who's officiating the wedding, Lord, and Again, just pray that you would speak your word through him in that service. Lord, we again praise you for the many blessings we have. Lord, we pray for Janet's mother. Lord, in in her advanced age, we pray that she would come to know Christ, that she would come to faith in Jesus. Lord, be a testimony that it is never too late. As Jesus redeemed the thief on the cross in the final hours of his life, Lord, that you are gracious. Lord, we pray for all these people. We pray for our time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, throughout the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit has been a significant theme. We continue in John chapters 14 through 17, something I feel like I say every week. It's one long speech that Jesus gave to the disciples on the night before he was crucified. In this farewell speech, Jesus has already made multiple references to the Holy Spirit. But our section today is Jesus' final teaching on the ministry of the Spirit in this gospel. The Holy Spirit will be mentioned a couple more times in John's gospel, but not ...to the length or depth that he's talked about in these verses today. Because of that, I want to do something a little bit different this morning. I want to survey the relevant passages on the Spirit in the Gospel of John leading up to chapter 16. Today, we'll talk about nine activities of the Holy Spirit. And before anybody panics, it's actually going to be a couple minutes shorter than usual... Well, I don't expect us to necessarily, off the top of our heads, remember all nine of these activities of the Spirit that we'll be talking about. I think it's edifying to point to the vastness and the multifaceted ministry of the Holy Spirit. The first six of these activities have happened in previous sections. The last three are found in today's passage. And the plan is to spend roughly half our time on the first six, and the second half of our time in our passage in chapter 16. Um, And again, I should say that my goal today is not to be exhaustive in talking about the activities of the Holy Spirit. But just to give glimpses of the expansiveness of the ministry of the Spirit. So, let's, with that, look at the unfolding ministry of the Holy Spirit and the Gospel of John. First point. The Spirit and the ministry of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is first mentioned in the opening chapter of John's Gospel. In John chapter 1, verses 32 to 34, we see the mention of the Spirit and the Son. John the Baptist is speaking when he says in verse 32, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist sees the Spirit descend on Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. All four Gospels talk about the Spirit being in Jesus, with Jesus, during his ministry. Second point, the spirit and regeneration. Once again, regeneration is a theological term that describes new spiritual life in a believer. It's the same idea as being born again. In John chapter 3, perhaps the section we've looked at more than any other in this gospel, a Pharisee named Nicodemus approaches Jesus after Hearing about the things that Jesus has been doing. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, "...truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit." So, Jesus talks of a spiritual rebirth that is absolutely necessary for a person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus will touch on this idea again in John chapter 6, verse 63, when he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The new, born-again, regenerate life that Christ requires can only happen through the Holy Spirit for a person who has faith in Christ. They go together. They work together. You have faith and you have the regenerative work of the Spirit. You can't have one without the other. Third, the Spirit and worship. In John chapter 4, Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus has told her of living water that he provides. Given John chapter 3, John chapter 7, and Ezekiel chapter 36, the living water is a clear reference to the Holy Spirit. But then he tells her in verses 23 and 24, The hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. A brief aside. In the Old Testament, worship was at the temple and before that at the tabernacle. The location of worship mattered. The place of worship mattered. But in pointing out that God is spirit and saying that, true worship is done in spirit and in truth, when we take John chapters 3 and 4 together, the point Jesus is making is that the only worship of God that is truly acceptable is spiritual worship from people who are born again of the Spirit. Again, in the Old Testament, worship was at the temple, mediated by the priest. The temple represented the presence of God. But Jesus is the true temple because he is where you go to meet God. And he is the priest who mediates between man and God. The only way to worship God and the manner that he ordains is to worship as faithful believers. And to be a faithful believer is to be born again of the Spirit. So the Spirit is integral to right worship of God. Worship that is done by people who are not born again of the Spirit is not true worship. Fourth, the Spirit will help the church when Jesus is God. We come to John chapter 14. As a reminder, it's the same speech that we're in in chapter 16. Where Jesus is speaking to the disciples on the eve of going to the cross. So it's the same night. And Jesus, in this speech, has already been talking about the Spirit. Chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Verse 17. Even the Spirit of truth... Whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. When Jesus tells that to the disciples, he's speaking in the future tense about what will be given to the disciples, and ultimately to the church as his provision when he's gone. Jesus refers to the Spirit as another helper. That's the first of several references to the Spirit as a helper in Jesus' farewell discourse. Jesus is the first helper. The Spirit is the second helper who will work to continue the ministry of Jesus when Jesus is no longer in the world. Fifth, the Spirit teaches. Just a few verses later, still in John chapter 14, Jesus will talk of the role that the Spirit will have in teaching and guiding the disciples. He says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Those John chapter 14 references, both touch on similar subjects to what Jesus will say in our chapter 16 passage, which we'll be at momentarily. But what Jesus is getting at is that the Spirit has taught the church what is essential to know about the truth of the gospel. Sixth, the Spirit bears witness. John 15, where we were a couple weeks ago, Jesus is talking to the disciples about the difficulties and persecution that they will face for following him. Fifteen twenty six. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Spirit will bear witness to a sinful world about the truth of Jesus, and the Spirit will bear witness in the lives of believers and in the church as to the truth of the gospel that the Spirit testifies that the gospel is true. So it is not a matter of us mustering up our own faith and confidence, doing it on our own, that we don't just will ourselves to trust in Jesus, that it is an act of the Spirit. So just to recap these first six, we've already seen that the Spirit is involved in the ministry of Jesus. The Spirit gives new life through regeneration. The Spirit is essential to right worship of God. The Spirit serves the church. The Spirit teaches, and the Spirit bears witness. And with that, we come to chapter 16, and we're looking at the second half of verse 4, and Jesus is continuing to speak to the disciples. And in this John chapter 16 passage, again, the final time that Jesus will speak at length The final time that Jesus will talk about the work of the Spirit, he will talk of three more activities of the Holy Spirit. And you remember the immediate context of this passage. Where we were last week, Jesus is talking about his departure. Last week we talked about the persecution and apostasy that the church would face after he was gone. He's warning the disciples. And with that, we begin to look at the second half of verse 4. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. During the earlier parts of his ministry, Jesus did not need to warn his disciples because he was the one receiving all of the hatred and scorn. But with Jesus preparing for the cross, he's not going to be with them to absorb all of that conflict on behalf of the disciples. Verses 5 and 6, but now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I take that as pointing to the disciples not fully grasping what Jesus is saying. That's something that we've seen really throughout the Gospel of John and that we'll touch on a little bit more in the next couple weeks. Jesus is the greatest teacher, the greatest leader, the greatest shepherd, the greatest miracle worker, the greatest man that any of the disciples have ever known or will ever know. And the idea that he's going to be gone in a few hours is almost beyond comprehension when they're looking at him in the flesh. When Jesus says that no one has asked where he's going, now there's actually a discrepancy there because in chapter 13, at the Last Supper, Peter asks that very question. 13.36, 13.36, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? But a common view among New Testament scholars is that Peter wasn't asking him where Jesus was going really out of concern for Jesus. Previous questions along these lines were somewhat out of self-interest in how it would impact the disciples. D.A. Carson argues that Peter's question was more of a protest rather than a sincere question. But Jesus will again mention that he is leaving. And he will talk of why it's actually a blessing to the disciples. Verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That brings us to our seventh activity of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is sent and fulfillment of the Old Testament. We haven't talked about this yet today, but this idea is not new in the Gospel of John. John chapter 7, they're at the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, beginning in 737, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in chapter 7, there's this link between the coming of the Spirit but not happening until after the glorification of Christ, which happens in conjunction with his death and resurrection. Once again in that passage, Jesus talks of living water. And John adds the elaboration that is a reference to the Spirit. So what John is saying is that Jesus would be glorified before the Spirit would be given. Compared to John chapter 16, when Jesus says, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The disciples will have incredible sorrow when Jesus is gone. But the reason why that will ultimately be to their advantage is that he's leaving, but that he will send the Spirit. To borrow again from D.A. Carson. He points out that the Old Testament makes numerous references to the coming of the Spirit in a future age. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So Ezekiel 36 is talking of a future time when the people of God will have the Spirit in them, leading them. Looks forward to a coming age. And what Jesus is saying in John chapter 16 is that that time is upon them. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit. That language is picked up in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And there are other Old Testament passages we could look at, especially in places like the book of Isaiah. And so the promise of the Spirit in the Old Testament will come after Jesus is glorified. So, Jesus is the promised Messiah, and he's saying that the next step in God's divine plan is the giving of the Spirit upon the people of God. We come to our eighth activity of the Spirit. The Spirit convicts of sin. Verses 8-11. through And when he comes, referring to the Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and he will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now that's quite the weighty theological statement. I've commented to several people the last couple of weeks that I feel like we're in the Paul section of the Gospel of John. On these verses... I find Edward Clink's commentary on John to be especially helpful. Because Jesus is basically giving a linked chain of ideas with what he's saying. The Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. The word convict in verse 8 is going to be related to the following verses, where he talks about sin, righteousness, and judgment. It's almost like convicts is a heading for what's to follow. When Jesus says the the Spirit convicts, he's using legal language. Like we're in a courtroom. We are guilty of what we have done. Verse 9, talking of conviction, Jesus says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Borrowing from Clink. The world is sinful. And The fallen world does not recognize its own sin. We need the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And when he says conviction of sin, in this instance, it's not so much talking about the conviction of a particular sin, but the conviction of our sinful state, that we are sinful people. We cannot convict our own hearts. It is the Holy Spirit that brings conviction. So the Spirit convicts the world of its sin, verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. The Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness. Now, words like righteous and righteousness are not common in John's Gospel. Various forms for righteousness are only found three times in this book, two of them in this passage. And he says that the Spirit convinced the world of righteousness. But what does that mean to be convicted of righteousness? I'll give an Old Testament example that I think is helpful where Isaiah uses the word righteous, but he's using it ironically. Isaiah 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who was unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The point that that verse is making is that Israel was so mired in sin that even the things that they thought were righteous were looked upon by God as filthy rags. But Isaiah calls those deeds righteous. Again, he's using irony. They might have been righteous in Israel's eyes, but in God's eyes they were not righteous. The world has a false righteousness where we think we're good. We think we're good enough. We think we can be good enough to get to God on our own. But the Spirit convicts the world of true righteousness that we cannot. That we need to rely on the grace of God. Second half of verse 10. Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. I take that to refer to after Christ is gone. The world thought that it had rightfully crucified a guilty man on the cross is the ultimate place of vindication for Jesus, displaying his divinity and his accomplishing his gospel purposes and in completing a sinless life. The Spirit will also convict the world, verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judge. The Spirit will convict the world of its false judgment about who Jesus is. There are those who judge falsely, and the Spirit brings conviction in that. Chief among the false judges, as this verse says, is the ruler of this world, referring to the devil, who is righteously condemned by God. So the Spirit brings conviction of sin, and we come to our ninth and final activity of the Spirit. The Spirit leads in truth. Jesus tells the disciples in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them down. There are things that Jesus is still leaving unsaid at the moment. It's one thing to study these words almost 2,000 years later. But everything that Jesus has told the disciples in this speech, imagine how overwhelming this would all be. But Jesus will point forward to one last activity of the Spirit, beginning in verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Just to highlight a couple of things. Jesus refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of Truth. That's the third time in this Gospel that Jesus has given that description. The title, Spirit of Truth, is best understood as the Spirit of who communicates truth. Jesus says, he will guide you. I want to focus on the fact that Jesus uses the personal pronoun he. The Spirit is not an it, nor is it a force, but the Spirit is a he. As with the Father and the Son, the Spirit has personhood within the Trinity. Again, it's not a force. The Spirit is God, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that the Spirit will guide the disciples into all truth. Now, he's not saying that the Spirit will make the disciples all-knowing, but the Spirit will communicate to followers of Jesus the truth, most importantly, the truth of what the gospel is in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus says that the Spirit will not speak on his own authority. Now, that's something that Jesus has said about himself throughout this gospel. John 7, 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. John 8, 28. Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. John 12, 49. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And the Spirit will not speak on his own authority. There is perfect unity within the triune Godhead. They are in perfect harmony with each other. Which matters because if we have God and Christ saying one thing and the Spirit saying another thing, we're being deceived. We need a unified Trinitarian God. In verse 14, Jesus says that the Spirit will glorify Him. The Bible talks of The Son and the Spirit glorifying the Father. It even talks of the Father and the Spirit glorifying the Son. But never does it talk about the Father and or the Son glorifying the Spirit. In the final verse of this passage, Jesus talks of the Spirit declaring what belongs to Jesus and declaring that to the world. So the Spirit leads in truth. He leads us in the truth of the gospel He convicts us of sin. He confirms what is true about Jesus. You know, there are many false teachers in the world today who say things that are not biblical, that are not in line with what Jesus taught. That doesn't come from the Spirit. What we think or what we believe, if it doesn't come in conjunction with God's Word and what the Spirit has truthfully revealed in accordance with God's Word, then someone is speaking falsely. If something is not true, then it's not from the Spirit. The Spirit glorifies Christ. If something does not glorify Christ, it's not from the Spirit. The Spirit convicts the world of sin. If something affirms sin, then it is not of the Spirit. Now, we've covered a lot of ground. Again, it's worth appreciating the Holy Spirit and the multifaceted ministry that he has in the world today. The role that the Holy Spirit has in the ministry of Jesus, that he would have in the early church, and that he has in the church today. But I want to close with circling back to one of the ideas that Jesus talked about in chapter 16, that the Spirit convicts. The Spirit convicts us of our own sinfulness. Jesus brings grace and forgiveness. But you don't know you need grace and forgiveness without being aware that you're sinful. And the Spirit convicts. Our society likes to affirm, likes to tell people that they're okay. But the danger with that is that it leads to a watered-down gospel of cheap grace that does not call us to holiness or repentance. That's problematic because our sin matters. Jesus did not go to the cross to show us that our sin didn't matter. He did it to show the great love of God and that there was no other way for humanity to be forgiven than for Jesus himself to die in our place. Jesus is gracious. He is forgiving. He is loving. That's the good news of the gospel. He forgives sin. He associates with sinners. But you never see anywhere in the Bible where Jesus affirms or condones sin. You have Jesus who died to forgive a sinful world. And you have the Spirit who convicts believers and convicts the world of its sin. God sent Jesus who is gracious. And God and Jesus sent the Spirit who convicts. We need both. We need both of those ministries. The heavenly ministry to the world of the Son and the Spirit is grace, but it's also a reminder and a conviction of our sin and why we need the grace in the first place. Both ministries are edifying. One points to our need for grace, one points to the way to grace. Is the Spirit convicting you today? Do you know Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? We are fallen people. That's the bad news, but the good news is that there is grace available to all who believe in Jesus through what he has done on the cross. His glorifying, perfect life, he did that to save sinful people. And when we believe in him, we are given the Spirit to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for the ministry of the Spirit in the world. Lord, we thank you for what Jesus has done for the world. Father, we thank you that Jesus has reconciled us to you. And the Spirit has been working throughout the history of the church and sanctifying us to you. Lord, we praise you for your word that points us to truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.